we thank you for the great and wonderful things that you have done for us. We thank you, Father, for the even greater things that are ahead. Blessed be the name of Jesus. We thank you, Father, for teaching us tonight by the Holy Ghost. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to start in Acts chapter 8. I want to uh, speak uh, uh, for a few moments tonight on Paul's conversion. The story really begins before Acts chapter 8. It tells us in Acts chapter 6 about the seven men that were chosen to wait on tables and to serve the people. The church was of such size and, uh, and it was growing in such a manner that where during the times that they would have meet, uh, meet meals and feasts for the people, not everybody was being treated fairly. And so one of the guys, uh, one of the nine, was a man named Stephen. And he says he was full of faith and power. And he did mighty wonders and signs among the people. Well, you can't have that. So the Jews brought accusation against him. They couldn't, uh, the scripture says of Stephen, it says they couldn't resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. And so they raised up false witnesses against him. And their only concern, at least in, in his trial, if you can call it that, their only concern was what he had said about the building or the temple. And they referred back to what Jesus said before his crucifixion, how that there would not be two stones left upon another, that the, the temple would be demolished. It certainly had not been by that point in time, by the point in time that they're questioning Stephen. But they're bringing accusation against him. And he, chapter 7 tells us his uh, defense and he talks a lot about the, the history of the Jews. He gives a summary of their history, things that they could not uh, deny because they believed the same thing. But then brings accusation against them, the religious leaders, for failing to recognize that Jesus was the Christ. And so they crucified him. It tells us in chapter 7 that they laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now this is who we know of as Paul after God changes his name. And so we'll pick up the story in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And Saul was consenting unto his death, the death he's talking about, or the person he's talking about is Stephen. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which it was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now we don't know if the, if the stoning of Stephen spurred on a, 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 the great persecution that's referred to, or if Stephen was just part of the great persecution that was already begun. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women committed and committed them to prison. It seems to indicate that Paul wasn't satisfied with being a junior helper, which is more or less what he was during the stoning of Stephen he was the guy that looked after everybody's clothes to make sure nobody bothered their stuff while they were busy killing the guy by throwing rocks at him. But apparently this emboldened Saul to a great degree. And so there in Jerusalem, he made havoc of the church. 
entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Chapter 9 tells us about his encounter with Jesus. Verse 1, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if, they, if he found any of this way, meaning Christianity, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Apparently, he's developed some kind of a, a bloodthirst or a bloodlust because it keeps getting stronger and stronger in his actions against the church. So much so that it wasn't like the religious leaders wanted him to go to Damascus and do something about it. He seeks them out. This is at his initiation. And here's a, here it says in verse 3, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art, who art thou, Lord? He doesn't know who's talking to him, but he knows who's got the power here. So he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will thou have me do? Notice there's two questions. Who are you? And what will you want me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did he eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in the vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and has seen in the vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from thy chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he, was rece and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. There's a lot of missing pieces to this story. For example, it doesn't tell us about Jesus telling Ananias specifically about appearing to him on the road. But apparently that's what took place because Ananias identifies the fact that it happened. The Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto you in the way as you camest has sent me. And what about the person he's staying with? Who is this Judas? 
It said, go to the street called Straight and inquire in the house of one Judas. He's got to be a Christian. He wouldn't be a religious friend of the religious leaders that sent Saul with the letters to Damascus. It wouldn't make sense for God to send Ananias to a household that would put him in danger. So that begs the question, what happened when he got to Damascus? Maybe this Judas was somebody that was kind of on the fence. We don't know if he was an acquaintance of Paul's or not. We don't know where he came from or what his role is. But Ananias comes to his house and boldly declares that Saul is his brother in the Lord. Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, in the preceding verses, there's nothing, no mention made about Ananias praying for Saul to receive the Holy Ghost. But we have to assume that there were more things that the Lord talked, talked about uh, to Ananias than just what's recorded. It also tells us about how that Saul had a vision. And interesting to me is that when the light shined round about the company that Paul was uh, riding with, traveling with, they all fell to the ground. They were all affected by the light, but nobody else heard a voice. One of Paul's uh, recounting the, his conversion experience, he says they heard no voice, meaning that they couldn't distinguish what was said. The words didn't make sense to them. They couldn't decipher the message, but they heard a voice that was rumbling like thunder. So Paul has a vision and sees Ananias, sees a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him. Ananias acted much the same way that I would expect you and I to act when he's given instruction to go pray for Paul and, and help him receive his sight again. Ananias has to make sure that God knows who he is Verse 13 again, it says, Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. He's making sure that Jesus knows exactly who Paul is. Just in case you haven't heard, Lord, he's destroyed the church, many in the church in Jerusalem, and he's come here to do the same thing. When Paul asks the Lord, First thing again, as we said before, he asked in verse 5, Who art thou? And Jesus said, he identifies himself, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Verse 6, and he is trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will you have me to do? Notice the direction that the Lord gives him. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. For Paul he has to take a step before he finds out what God wants him to do. Now, here's the thought that I'd like to put out there. Why did, Paul, why did God pick, uh, pick Saul, who we know of as Paul? Why did he pick him? One of the things that the Lord reveals unto Ananias, he says, I'll show him how, much, how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. But he also tells him something else. 
He says that Paul is a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Why is that necessary for Paul to do? Why doesn't Jesus just appear to Caesar or give Caesar some kind of spectacular experience to bring him into the family of God like Paul had? I dare say that none of us have been saved or got saved the same way that Paul did. This is an out-of-the-ordinary experience, certainly. But why didn't the Lord just do something relating to the kings that were in place? He did that one other time in, in, uh, throughout the history of the church in Roman history. It tells us of a uh, history, tells us of a Roman emperor named Constantine. That about 305, 306 A.D., 275 maybe years after this takes place in Acts chapter 9 he's waging war to become the next emperor of Rome and before the battle began there was a cross that appeared in the sky and all of the men of his army saw it it was in plain sight of everybody and the Lord spoke to Constantine and said Go and conquer in this name. Well, the sign of the cross that they saw is not the T-bar the thing that we would expect. But it was a combination of Greek letters that stand for Jesus. As a result, Constantine won the battle, became the emperor of Rome, and he became a Christian. And there were a lot of things that took place as a result of Constantine's conversion to Christianity. There were some positive things, like now that the emperor is a Christian, everybody has to tolerate Christianity and Christians. But there was some also some long-term effects there too because the church became a, a function of the government rather than independent and working without the government's uh, approval in many cases and certainly without their badge of approval. And so it became a fashionable thing with Constantine as the ruler of Rome, the emperor of Rome. It became a fashionable thing for people to be Christians or become Christians too. But for the greatest part, the church lost its power during that period of time, during Constantine's rule, and even to a great degree, his son's rule right after him. Some of the things that we see God do might appear to us to be a different way than we think it should be done. But Paul found, uh, Jesus found something in this man named Paul that turned the world upside down in a much greater way than even the emperor of Rome could do some 275 years later. Now I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 22. Paul is on his way in just a few short days after these things transpire to Rome. He has not appealed to Caesar yet, but he's about to do that. He goes to Jerusalem. You remember the story in Acts chapter 19 where it says 
the Spirit moved Paul to plan to go to Jerusalem. And you remember how that the Holy Ghost revealed to him and confirmed in every city that he went to that they would, the Jews would take him captive in Jerusalem and try to take his life. That happens in city after city after city. A lot of people take those circumstances and assume that God was telling Paul not to go. But Paul kept explaining to the people that were trying to keep him from harm that he was certainly ready for whatever happened and that he knew that was part of the work that he was supposed to do. So much so that he convinced his friends that the will of God was for him to go even though he would be taken captive and put in chains. He's a guy that wouldn't quit. In Acts chapter 22, it tells us about how they took him, took hold of him in the temple in Jerusalem. And they were about to cart him off to prison. But he asked the Roman soldiers that were taking hold of him, accosting him, and asked if he was able, if they would allow him to speak to the people. And so they did. And in Acts chapter 22, verse 1, Paul says to the Jews at the temple in Jerusalem, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. And when they heard that he spoke in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence. And he said, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was known as one of the greatest of the uh, Jewish rabbis since the beginning. So he says, I was brought up in this city in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as you are all this day. And I persecuted this way unto death, unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Paul had a unique perspective on this. He recognized that the Jews, certainly there were people at the top that were responsible for inciting and stirring the people up. But the rank and file Jewish congregation that was in the temple that are shouting about what to do to him until they quieten themselves down, or Paul quieted them down, I guess. He knows that they're being zealous for God. He knows that it's not a malicious thing, it's not a personal thing. Because that's the same reason he was doing what he did before he got saved. So he said, I persecuted this way, talking about Christianity under the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest does bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shined from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell unto the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? 
And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all the things which are appointed for you to do. And when I could not see by the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked upon him. And he said, The God of our fathers has chosen thee, that thou shouldest do it, know his will, and see that just one, and should hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed into the, in the temple, I was in a trance. And I saw him saying unto me, Make haste, and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And Jesus said unto him, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Now, the book of Acts is written by Luke, the author of the gospel that bears his name as well. And Luke became a part of Paul's company. So even though Luke was not present at some of these things that took place, he was a member of Paul's traveling company. And so there's no telling how many times he's heard this story of what happened. There's no telling how many times he talked to Paul specifically and personally, privately perhaps, to find out all the details of what was done and how it happened. And here we have Paul recounting that same thing, exactly the same thing that the Holy Ghost revealed to us in chapter 9 that the Lord said. He said, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee there what thou must do. In other words, Paul had a step to take on his own before he got direction from God. He had to go into the city. He had to put himself in the right place to get the direction of God for his life. Folks, there's so many things that we can look back at in our lives and recognize, even though we didn't know it at the time perhaps, but recognize if we hadn't been in this place, if we hadn't been at this time, then our lives would have gone in a completely different direction. I know a lot of people are willing to believe God and willing to trust God and even obey Him in the big stuff. But they don't want to take care of the little things that usually deal with character and integrity. But it's the little things that bring you to the great revelations. It's the carrying out of the little things in life that put us in place for God to use us according to His perfect plan and, and will. Paul recognizes that Jesus is Lord while he's on the road to Damascus. But there's nothing that guaranteed that that would be his response. The light that shined round about him wasn't just a bright light like the sun 
but it was a forceful light. It was the glory of God that knocked him off the animal that he was riding. He recognized the power. He recognized this has got to be God. But he also recognizes that he doesn't know him. He has to ask, who art thou, Lord? He realizes this is not a friendly meeting because of the power that's displayed against him to put him on the ground. He can't look. He can't open his eyes because the glory is so much greater than even looking into the sun would be. We look into the sun for a few seconds and see spots. Paul looked at the glory of God for a fraction of a second and it blinded him for three days. And it would have been a lot longer than that except God made provision for him by sending Ananias to him. Now Paul doesn't back away from the things that he did. Let me read to you from Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13. Paul says, writing to the churches in the region of Galatia, For you have heard of my conversation in times past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. Notice that he calls it persecution beyond measure. And profited in the Jewish religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again into Damascus. He doesn't sugarcoat what he did, and everybody knows what he did. Paul was probably the most famous person on the face of the earth at, at, around that time and during the time of his ministry. Now, there's another place. I told you there were three places. There's another um, instance in Acts chapter 26 where Paul is telling his conversion story, this time to King Agrippa. Acts chapter 26, verse 1, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation in Jerusalem, know all the Jews. Everybody knows his story. Everybody knows his background. Which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straight the most straightest sect of our religion I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. 
And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even under strange cities. Folks, let that sink in for a little bit. Paul certainly comes to the place where he recognizes that God doesn't hold that against him because of the things he did and did in ignorance. But that's quite a load to carry around, isn't it? I'm sure Paul did exactly what he taught us to do. I'm sure he cast his care over on the Lord. I'm sure he had to forgive himself just as God forgave him for what he did to people. But he had a lot of people put to death, it seems. And others, he compelled them to blaspheme, to recant their belief in God and in Jesus, or else they would face the same prison and death execution too. Paul was responsible for a lot of things against the church, and he doesn't sugarcoat it a bit. He says right out there, this is what I did. Whatever you think about it, this is what I did. Verse 12, whereupon as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard to kick against the pricks. Here he gives us a little bit more detail when he's talking to Agrippa. He talks about the forcefulness of that light that knocked everybody off their animals. And he hears a, a voice in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you persecute. Now, I'm, not, I'm sure it doesn't come as a surprise to Paul that Jesus considers persecuting his believers and persecuting the children of God, believers in Jesus for their salvation, is the same as persecuting Jesus himself. And since Jesus has just shown his power in a mighty way to Paul and, and the company of people that he's riding with, I'm sure that one of the first thoughts he had is, I'm sunk now. So Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you persecute, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Wherefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Now Paul changes the order of things. He kind of summarizes and encapsulates some things because King Agrippa is not going to care about who Ananias is or about the Lord appearing to him in a vision and Paul's having seen in a vision during those three days somebody named Ananias coming to him. There's no contradiction here or division between the stories. It's just a different way that he told the people based on the, the audience that he was speaking to. So he says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. 
but showed first unto them in, of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. So he explains that this is just a religious issue, a, a religious matter, that the Jews were unjustly attempting to kill him, and that's why he's had to appeal to Caesar, and this is part of his journey, the early part of his journey from Jerusalem to Rome. Folks, we're living in some interesting times. Paul told us some things about the last days. In writing to Timothy, his son in the faith and a minister the pastor of the church at Ephesus, the, the, probably the biggest and certainly the most well-known, the most famous church in that generation. He writes to Timothy and he says, Know this, in the last days perilous times will come. One of the meanings of that word perilous is dangerous, but uh, really the root word that it comes from could be interpreted and should be interpreted strength-reducing times. Strength-reducing times. Now look at the things that have taken place with this coronavirus and the lockdown and all the, the things that have taken place over the last, well, I guess we're going on close to three months now. There were a lot of Christians that were robbed of their strength. Not because it wasn't available to them. Not because God wouldn't provide it for them. But because they believed the hype and the hysteria that was coming from the media circles instead of what the Bible says. One of the things where it talks about Paul, the letters that he wrote, the doctrine that he shared, and the glimpse into his personal life, into the man that he really is. Paul was one person that may be the greatest example of Christianity and the effects of Christianity upon the human life and experience that there ever was. There were a lot of people in Paul's day that said he was just preaching for the money. But you can see from the things that Paul wrote and the way that he lived, he certainly wasn't in it for the money. There were others in Paul's day that believed and, and proclaimed that Paul made up the whole story. He made up the story of his conversion. He made up the light shining round about him in Damascus or on the road to Damascus. He made up the story about Jesus appearing to him. He made up the future stories about the revelation that Jesus gave him about who we are in Christ and the doctrine that's laid out in, in all the letters that he wrote to the church. But nobody really considered the question. Paul asked it once. But nobody else ever really considered the question. What was in it for him to lie about this stuff? He's persecuted by the Jews. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it gives us a list of all the things that he's endured. Beatings, stonings, imprisonment, being shipwrecked in perils in the cities that he goes to, in perils in the, um, in the countryside as he journeys on to the places that the Lord wants him to go, in perils of robbers, in perils of false brethren. That may have been the worst of the bunch. 
At least it seems so from Paul's writings. Paul was either the greatest example of how the new birth utterly changes a human being or he was the biggest lunatic that has ever been memorialized in history. God saw something in Paul, the same thing that made him zealous to persecute the church. That same refusal to quit, that same focus is what made him, in my opinion, the greatest of the apostles, certainly for the works that they did. Paul even says it about himself. He says, I've labored more fervently than any of the other apostles. I've worked harder than anybody. I wouldn't be surprised if some of his motivation there was him trying to make up for the things that he did and the persecutions that he brought against the church before he knew Jesus. And of course, that would be a foolish endeavor. You never can do that. He never would be able to do enough to satisfy himself he's already been forgiven by God the people that are in heaven don't want to come back to the earth they're glad with where they are but I just know my own thinking and the way that I would approach this same type of stuff that'd be hard to get past that may have been the greatest act of faith in Paul's life that we ever have record of to be able to choose to accept righteousness knowing full well the things that you did against people that were innocent people that loved God just like he does now one thing about the last several weeks we found out who values the church and who doesn't I was so glad last week when President Trump announced that churches were essential. I thought for a while there I might have to go get a part-time job at Walmart as a greeter. But God certainly considers it essential. Folks, if the Bible is telling us the truth, about some of the perils of the last days and some of the persecution of the church and up to this point the church has been persecuted just a little bit but even that was enough to knock a lot of Christians off their feet there's never been a more important time for the church to recognize for believers everywhere on this earth to recognize the truth of God's word and the power behind it. We're going to have to be a people that believe in God's word, speak God's word, profess the faithfulness of God to keep his word. It's going to be more important now than any other time in our, in our lifetimes at least. But just as I mentioned earlier in the service, 
about how the church under Constantine ruler uh, rule as the emperor of Rome or emperor of the Roman Empire. Just as the church began to lose some of its power because becoming a Christian was a fashionable thing to do. Confessing Jesus as your Lord and Savior was done by many, not because they believed in God or believed in what Jesus did, but so they, they might curry some greater favor from the emperor himself. But just as that watered down the, the, the power of God on display to a great deal during those days, when you look at the church under persecution, those become the church's finest hours. I'm not exactly sure all what the, the future will hold for us. But this I do know. I know that there's never been a more important time to build our house on the rock. There's never been a more important time to seek the leading of the Holy Ghost in whatever we do and wherever we go. There's never been a more important time to meditate in the word and make our hearts full of God's word so that we're ready when trouble arises. One of the saddest things to behold is Christians who don't prepare themselves ahead of time. But they wait till the crisis arises and then they try to find faith to overcome whatever it is they're facing. The best time to develop your faith is when you don't think you need it. The best times to meditate in the word of God and soak in the word so that it fills your whole inner being is before the pressure starts. I look at the list of things that Paul identifies that he faced in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And it struck me one day that that was a list of things that weren't enough to stop him. He's not complaining about the things that he experienced. He's simply showing that the power of God that was upon him and in him was sufficient to bring him through all, any and all of those things. It's quite an impressive list when you recognize that those attacks of the devil as strong as they were, as great as they were, and as often as they were. We're never going to cause him to stop. What a tremendous example Paul's life is to us. Now, folks, don't get me wrong. I don't have a martyr wish. But I do desire, maybe more than anything else in my life, to see the glory of God on display so that people come to know Jesus is the Messiah with great power and not just enticing words of man's wisdom. So for that reason, I continue to pray for the glory of God. For that reason, I continue to pray that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. That we would know what is the hope of his calling. And what are the riches of his inheritance of the saints in glory 
And what is the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us with his believers? More than anything, I want to know the hope of his calling. I want to know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in us because of what Jesus did. And I want to know the exceeding greatness of his power at work to help and bless other people. I trust that you want the same things. Let's play. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we welcome another opportunity to pray according to your word. You said, Lord, that the glory of the latter house shall be greater than of the former. You said in your church you would give peace. Therefore, Father, I thank you for manifesting your glory. I thank you for sending the rain, the moving of the Holy Ghost, to bring forth this precious fruit of the earth. I thank you, Father, for opening the eyes of our understanding that we might see the work that you have for us to do, willingly engaged in, in it, And confirm your word with signs following. Father, I thank you for giving us boldness to speak your word. By stretching forth your hand to heal. And that signs and wonders and miracles might be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for strengthening us. To make us worthy of the great sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And Father, we thank you for a display of your power and a manifestation of your presence so that the whole earth would truly be filled with the knowledge of your glory. We pray these things believing in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being with us. We hope you can come out and be with us Sunday morning when we have another live service but if not then be ready to bring us into your home online through facebook or youtube thank you so much for being a part of us we love you